Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast where small business owners are celebrated as the backbone of the American economy. Each week, we introduce you to tycoons who share their stories and advice so that small business owners may learn from their experiences. Tycoons is powered by Backbone Planning Partners. Join us now as our hosts connect you to today's tycoons. Good afternoon, tycoons, and welcome to today's episode of Tycoons of Small Biz. I'm your host here, as always, Austin Peterson, coming to you live from the oven that is Phoenix, Arizona this time of year. Um, and uh, as always, we are we are interviewing a business owner, letting them come on, tell their story, talk about what it is that they do, what it is that uh, they've learned over their years being an entrepreneur, and uh, you know lessons that they can convey to others that are around there. So with that being said, today we've got Rob Buffington on the show. Rob Buffington is definitely a tycoon. He's built uh, multiple companies. We'll let him talk about that. But uh, we are uh, going to be highlighting Gordian Staffing and maybe some of his other companies today. But uh, Rob is coming to us live from Omaha, Nebraska. Rob, welcome in. Thanks for having me. So it's a big time of year in Omaha, Nebraska, the College World Series. What, yes. Uh, what what is your guys' do you guys have kind of traditions that you do there? Do you get involved with the World Series? What uh what involvement do you have there? Well, I'll be going Saturday. We're actually transplants. We've only been here two years, so we haven't quite dug in, but I'll be going on Saturday to a nice little event there. Yeah, it's a it's a really cool experience. I was there, um, let's see, it would have been probably 2012 is when I was there. My So my son was a baseball player growing up. He's now 23, graduated college, married, didn't make it to the major leagues, but, uh, you know, he had a, he had a great childhood career on a travel baseball team that happened to play a tournament in Omaha at the same time as the College World Series. And so as a byproduct of that, we got to go to several College World Series games while we were there and experience that atmosphere. And it was, it was pretty cool and, and a great experience for 12-year-old kids for sure. Very nice. Yeah. All right. So, Rob, tell us a little bit about you personally. Uh, obviously, a transplant to Omaha. So, where did you live before that? Where did you grow up? What's your family look like? Anything you'd like us to know about you personally? Um, we moved from the Bay Area, uh, California Bay Area. Um, moved around nine times in the first eight years of our marriage, uh, and uh, now been here for two and a half years, which is pretty sadly a record, but uh, I'm married just over 10 years, three kids, ages five, six, and eight. Awesome. So the the other, was it eight moves in nine years or nine moves in eight years? I think it's nine in eight because we never stayed more, we never stayed a year in a place for the first eight years. Okay. So were, were all of those other eight moves in and around the Bay Area or were they in other areas of the country as well? Mainly from Southern California up to Northern California, all around the Bay Area, and then finally here where we've been two and a half years. Gotcha. So was there anything besides the fact that, uh, you know, the College World Series is played in Omaha that drew you guys to Omaha? Quite a bit, actually. People, um, people think of Omaha as a small town, but it's actually surprisingly robust. The metro has about a million people in it. Um, we actually moved by process of elimination. We didn't know a single person here, not in the entire state, but for years we knew that we weren't planning on staying in California forever. We wanted our kids to grow up someplace 
um, closer to nature, more parks, cheaper, less taxes, stuff like that. And so for years, we just made a list of, no, I wouldn't want to live there. No, I wouldn't want to live there. And we started to say, well, we want a metro of at least half a million, but we wanted to have kind of a small town vibe. We want a really good economy, decent airport, great schools, good cost of living, good taxes. And little by little, we ended up with, uh, with Omaha. Yeah, I'm, I'm definitely not an Omaha expert, but I know enough to say that you can kind of tick off all those boxes, right? I mean, I've, I've spent some time in Omaha, just, you know, the College World Series, but then I have some other friends that live in Omaha. Warren Buffett, for those who don't know, his, his hometown or his home base is Omaha, Nebraska. Um, and it's, I mean, it really is kind of what, if you haven't visited the middle of the country, it's kind of what you envision the middle of the country to be like, right? It's got that small town feel, but like you said, they've got a robust economy, taxes are low, cost of living's low, especially compared to the Bay Area or Southern California. And so, yeah. you, you know, you get to reap those benefits as well. I mean, I don't, I don't know if you owned anything in, in Northern California, but even if you didn't, like, the rent that you were paying there compared to the mortgage that you likely have in Omaha today is, is just yeah. night and day. And that was a large part of it is our first, not business, but our first enterprise was rental properties. In college, I started buying rental properties and Omaha has a very good real estate market. And in the last recession, Omaha had the fourth lowest unemployment rate and Lincoln had the first lowest unemployment rate. So it's a great place to build your own portfolio and have rental houses and things like that. So that's one of the things that put us on the map. Gotcha. All right. So tell us, tell us a little bit more about the history business wise, right? So you just mentioned rental properties, HOA, those sorts of things. I know you kind of had your, had your start there in college. So catch us up, like where, where did you start and where are you today? Obviously with Gordian staffing. Um, uh, I was always doing something. I think in college, I started to save up, started, it was, it was in, um, uh, 2009, 2010, right when the housing market was crashing, I started to buy these properties. Uh, my first house was twenty uh, was uh, sixty nine thousand um, dollars, and then bought another and another. Never did flips. I would I'd fix them up. I'd rent them out for a couple of years and then sell them. Take out a home equity line if I could. Um, build from there. And then we started to buy or try and found other businesses. Um, I had a cleaning company uh, twice, I think. I had a, a couple property management companies. I had a janitorial and a, a gutter cleaning, window cleaning company. Um, and we just kept looking at, we have this, what problems do we want to solve? Let's try this. So we had two property management companies. Hey, it's a hard time getting vendors and, and regular maintenance. Let's buy a building maintenance company and bring it in. That's how we got into staffing is, hey, it's really hard to get staffing. We're going to try hiring remotely. And it was so successful that we founded Gordian Staffing to do it for other people. Um, same thing, Gordian Financial. We started doing accounting because a lot of our clients needed accounting and Gordian Consulting. They all just came out of the question of, you know, what next? What's the next biggest problem we have that we can help solve? Yeah. Yeah. And I think that there are a lot of different entrepreneurs that have successes that come out of, gosh, you know, our clients need these services as well. And we have the ability to provide that. So why don't we just 
provided under the same umbrella and you've you've clearly done exactly that. yeah that's yeah that's that's the goal i i've always not always but i i've developed the philosophy from working with hundreds of companies over the last 10 years when you're if you're a one-man shop you can probably go through your life without getting that big lawsuit, that big tax audit, you, you fly under the radar. And I, some of the happiest people I know, they've got their skill, they open a one-man shop and they love it. And I'm envious. I know that I could never do that, but I'm envious. I think they've really got life figured out. And then on the other side, you're a Fortune 500, you have in-house counsel, you have a marketing department, you have legal, HR, all of that's all figured out. But there's this intermediate turbulence zone that you're too big to fly under the radar, but you still haven't figured stuff out and you can't afford to pay six figures for all the four, the aforementioned areas. And that's who we're trying to help because we went through some difficult times. We're trying to speed up other people getting through that time. And we're looking to launch other services like fractional HR, fractional IT, stuff like that to help protect people while they're growing. That's why so many businesses plateau at that same level because they don't have the skills to go to the next stage. Yeah. You know, I think that that little explanation that you went on there, you know, the difference between the, the one man shop, the solopreneur, if you will, um, all the way up to the fortune 500, but then 99% of all companies, they're not in that middle because it includes the solopreneur, but 99% of all companies are, are below that fortune 500 level. Right. And you're right. They they start out as solopreneurs and then they realize, OK, I can I can hire a couple of people. I need the help. I need the extra, you know, whatever. And then they find themselves getting to five, six, ten, you know. But but at that point, they really struggle with the systemization of the business. What do I delegate? How do I delegate it? What are the standard operating procedures? What are the you know, all of that? And and it's really those types of things that are the one of the main reasons, if not the main reason that we launched this podcast a little over three years ago was to be able to have guys like you share experiences and things that they've done to help other people who are either in the exact same spot or right behind you coming up and, and can avoid some of the mistakes that maybe you made along the way. Yeah. And one thing I've observed is that every stage of a business requires something different. Like you said, you open your doors and the first thing you need is sales. You need to just go out and sell because otherwise there's no point. So if you do sales and you can lump marketing in, next you actually have to produce a product. So production, whether that's cooking a meal, performing a service, selling something, whatever, you need production. Then you got to start hiring a few people. You need to start managing some entry-level people. Okay. Then you need systems. Well, I have seven, 10, 12 people. I can't hold their hand. Okay. I need systems. I need training guides. I need metrics for performance. Okay, great. Now I need HR because somebody is needs to take time off for a medical injury, or I need you know legal because I have a I fire somebody, stuff like that. Then you get into like systems and automation and just every level you need something different. And I heard somebody say something probably five, six years ago that stuck with me. The, the same skills that got you to your current level will kill you at the next level. Yeah. Every level you have to pivot completely. And too many of us try to be well-rounded and well-rounded is a crock. Nobody is well-rounded. 
you have to hire people for your weaknesses and stick to what you're good at. And that's what we try to develop because you can't, you can't hire a full-time IT manager with 20 employees. It doesn't work. Same thing with HR and legal. So yeah, we're, we're trying to solve a systemic problem in the business community. <laughs> yep. Yeah, no, a different way of saying what you just said is what got you here won't get you there, right? Yeah, in fact, I think I have a book literally called. Well, there you go. <laughs> what got you here won't get you there. Yeah, so I, I literally just had that conversation with one of my clients a few weeks ago. You know, they're doing, uh, they're doing somewhere between 10 and 12 million, maybe on the outside edge of 13 million in revenue this year. But they're building to be 20, 25, 30 million. And that was the exact conversation was, okay, you know, the, it's a father and son team. And the father's going, I would never would have expected us to get here anyway. The mm -hmm. son said, I did expect us to get here. And I do expect us to get there. But I didn't expect for us to still be dealing with some of the same issues today that we were dealing with when we were a $1 million revenue company from a cash flow perspective from a this yeah. and then from that you know and uh it, it's just crazy you know i think I, I spoke at a business conference last week and there were some some owners in that in that conference that had multiple locations and call it you know 10 to 20 employees but most of them were like five or fewer employees and a single location type of a business and, you know, if you're if you remind yourself of what it was like when your business was that size and then you fast forward and you think that you were still going to have cash flow issues at 10 million in revenue, you, you just you roll your eyes and think there's no way that's so much revenue. I will never have cash flow issues at that point. But the reality is you absolutely do. And you've got to put safeguards in place to build to where it's not a major issue. Yeah, I can't, I mean, I don't know if I should say this publicly because people know my company, but we never have enough cash. <laughs> we, <laughs> we grow at a, at a crazy rate. It's like, you're doing amazing. It's like, yeah, I'm still broke, buddy. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm putting the money into the company still. Uh, and eventually that'll change, I hope. <laughs> <laughs> I, yeah. My employees take home way more than I do. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, and I think people who are only employees, or, you know, I don't mean it in a, you're only an employee, but have have only been employees, have not owned a, a business themselves. I don't think that a lot of them realize that that's the case, right? I mean, oh, the reality yeah. is, as startups, and, and I when I say startups, I'm talking, you know, up to 10 years in a lot of cases, the owner oh, of the yeah. business is making less than their higher paid employees, for sure. Oh yeah, I we're, we're in a better place now. But four or five years ago, you'd be amazed how many bills I paid with credit cards. <laughs> yep, yep. And I'm sure everybody listening has has done that themselves. I know I have over the years. And so it it's just it's the nature of the beast. You're growing, you're you're building, and and you're doing it with the anticipation of in the future. I will pay myself more and I will be able to exit this business at a number that, that works for me. So yeah, yeah it's, it's an ongoing struggle for sure. Yeah. And if you're a solopreneur, you have two or three people and you're doing 500,000 in revenue. Okay. A percent that costs you 1% of revenue is, is $5,000. 
not insignificant, but not nothing that's going to break you. If you grow to be a hundred million dollar company and you make a 1% mistake, that will sink you. So yeah, yeah. It, it's, yeah. And financial planning, auditing, cash flow, all of that is one of those stages that you have to get through and bring in the right help to evolve. Yep. There's no doubt about it. No doubt. Sad, sadly, the day of developing a good product and doing your work well and succeeding. I don't want to say it's gone, but it's a hell of a lot more difficult. Um, regulations yeah. and planning and all that. And of course, the, some of those same things have made it easier to succeed too. So it's, it's you know, it's not all gloom and doom, but uh, it takes a heck of a lot more than a good idea and some work ethic these days. <laughs> yeah, we're definitely in a different world. All right, so let's talk about Gordian staffing. So you guys specialize in remote employee staffing, right? So Correct. it's it's typically or maybe never somebody that's going to show up in your office to fill a position. So talk to us about specifically because I know this is on the minds of a lot of different entrepreneurs and, and business owners throughout the country. Is this this remote work idea, the work from home, the you know all this kind of stuff that has literally. It, it was happening before the pandemic, but that that facilitated just this speeding up of that in a big, big way. And specifically technology companies and, and other companies that are out there that have the ability for, for their people to work from home, great. But it does have drawbacks. So, oh, yeah. so how do you guys make sure that you're monitoring productivity, first of all, in remote mm -hmm. teams? Yeah, there's there's four or five really good points there. Um, so what we do with Gordian Staffing is we provide remote staff for companies here in the U.S., Canada. We have a client in Germany now, um, doing pretty much anything you can think of that doesn't require you to be there. And the way that it started was we hired for ourselves. We had uh, the two property management companies and the building services company, and we had a difficult time hiring domestic staff, and this was long before COVID. So we gave it a try, and when somebody told us about it, we said, well, let's, let's see how it goes. And so within a few months, we had about 10, 12 people working for us internally. We formed the corporation so we could offer benefits and do everything compliant in, in Mexico. And a friend of mine one day asked me, you know, hey, that that sounds really cool. Could you help me find somebody? And I said, well, sure, why not? And so then he hired a couple more and he told somebody and they told somebody and it, it just grew. And I think we had about 50 people when COVID hit. And once COVID hit, man, oh man, did that thing take off like a rocket. Um, because not, not that we were saving people money, but we were just, we were getting people. And the trick is we pay really, really well. A lot of our competitors, they kind of, they want to pay as little as possible, charge as much as possible. Our philosophy is we will make a lot more money and will be a lot more successful in the long term by paying really well, charging as little as we can get away with and keeping people for 10 years. So unlike a lot of companies, our people stay for years. We keep over 90% retention year over year because they get full medical, they get benefits, they get, they work on company equipment. And so we, we create an environment where they can grow and thrive. And then on the, uh, the client side, all the stuff we talked about before, you can't mm -hmm. hire a full-time marketing person. Well, what if we can hire you a marketing person in Mexico that costs half as much to help you build that? 
Um, and then beyond just the cost savings, we check in on a regular basis with just the employees as well as the clients. And we pass of, hey, how are things going? What Do you have any concerns? Anything you can help with, uh, you, we can help with. And we, we just keep those lines of communication open. Um, and right now we're actually working on a project to develop our own learning management system so that existing employees can say, hey, I'd really like to improve my uh, customer service skills or my project management skills or what have you. And we'll have a system that they can take whatever class they want, all included, so that they can grow into future positions. And similarly, the clients benefit from that. Yeah, no, I think I think it's a great way to look at it. I've had conversations with some other groups recently that have a similar philosophy to yours, right? Because it, a, a lot of companies in our country specifically, when they're looking at outsourcing outside of the country, right, or offshoring some of their service work or whatever the case may be, their their main goal in doing so is save money, right? Mm -hmm. The prevailing wage in the Philippines or Mexico or whatever is lower than it is in the US because the cost right. of living is but they're constantly wanting to go as low as possible to get people in that area rather than, okay, maybe the prevailing wage is whatever, call it 10 bucks an hour. I'm mm -hmm. willing to pay 12 because I get somebody that's, that's a higher quality, but I'm also then helping them to potentially get out of that poverty cycle of their own in in their home country is that is that jive with what you're saying from culture or from a philosophy standpoint to a degree um i mean we our offices are in guadalajara and mexico city so a lot of people think that we're hiring people in the middle of nowhere you know living in a mud hut that kind of thing guadalajara has five million people mexico city has 25 million uh my favorite cigar bar literally in the world is in mexico at andares I mean, I, they have restaurants there that I would put on par with anywhere in the world. They have a Rolex shop. I mean, it is not, there are certainly underdeveloped parts, but people have the misconception that, you know, we're hiring people working in a mud hut somewhere, which is just not, not the case. Um, we do take the, the policy, though, that it's better to pay them well and keep them, because if you look at the cost of employee turnover, it's cheaper to pay 15 to 20% more and keep somebody for five years than churn and burn every six months, both on our side and on the client side. And then the employee feels confident that there's a place they could stay long-term as well. Yeah. So, so you, and, and that, that's a great response. And, and obviously pointing out that it's Mexico city and Guadalajara rather than, you know, a small town in, in Mexico, it, it does make a huge difference. Um, how are you guys handling the benefits that you mentioned, right? So you talked mm -hmm. about benefits internally in your organization, but these employees are technically in another country. So how are you guys mm -hmm. handling? Well, we formed entities in both Mexico and the Philippines. We have HR staff, we have recruiters, we have accountants. The same way that we would here, just there, we have major medical policies, we have retirement funds, we have restaurant and food tickets. So we, we do it just the same way we would here. There's no real secret sauce. We just put the work in, we put the numbers in, we pay people well and, and do our best to find and keep the right people. Um, so yeah, we just, we've put the work in over the last um, six or seven years now. Gotcha. 
So those those benefits are administered in their home country then, not... Correct. Gotcha. Okay. And a lot um, of companies will do the independent contractor under the table type thing. And, and I, I won't say it's wrong. I, I don't think there's anything morally wrong with it as long as both people are agreeing to it. I think on a long-term scale, people are going to regret it because I want you to imagine that you're looking for a job. And if you're waiting tables and somebody offered to pay you under the table, no benefits, nothing like that. Okay. Yeah, sure. No problem for six months, a year, things like that. If you're looking for a vice president of operations role, and I said, hey, I'm going to pay you eight bucks an hour, uh, but then everything else is going to be a cash bonus or something like that, and there's no benefits, there's nothing, they're going to look at you like you're crazy. And we've had countless people come to us and from that mindset and say, I'm trying to get a house, but I have no credit score, I have no records, I have no pay stubs. You know, it just it doesn't work when you grow up and grow into bigger positions. Um, and so now a lot of our competitors going to the baseball analogy, they've kind of become AAA ball clubs for us. <laughs> People work there until they realize on the long-term basis, they're going to want benefits and stability and all of that. And then they apply for jobs with us because of how we treat them. Yeah, no, I think that's a great way to look at it. So <clears throat> The, the other thing that, so productivity becomes an issue, right? And, and the way that you're monitoring that. So address that real quickly. Sure. And then I'm going to follow, follow that up with the other big thing that is out there that everybody's talking about is culture. So productivity sure. and culture. So how are you guys dealing with that uh, inside of your organization by staffing for other people remotely? Yeah, both both very important points to cover. Uh, the, one of the biggest mistakes we saw, particularly in the early days, was that people would treat remote staff almost like a piece of software. Like, okay, we've hired one person, they're just going to hit the ground running and, and everything's going to work great. And it's like, no, this is an employee. You need to teach them, you need to check up on them, you need to train them. So there's a couple ways to target that, to, to attack this problem. First off is you've got to get away from the idea of tracking time. Now, by all means, you're paying for eight hours, you should get eight hours. But I like to tell people, even before the pandemic, you're not paying for eight hours in the back of somebody's head. You're paid for what they're doing in that time. So if you have a position and you're going to try to fill it, you have to ask yourself, what is the output you're expecting? If it's a customer service rep or it's a receptionist or something like that, maybe it's take 100 client calls, have a customer satisfaction rate of 97%, a missed call percentage of less than 3%, something like that. If it's an AP clerk, code 300 invoices with an error percentage of less than half a percent, you know, it, it's that kind of stuff. Develop those numbers, those metrics, and start to track it. And the beauty of it is it helps with scalability and it helps with checking your domestic staff too. Because I, I will say we've had a lot of clients who are a lot more focused on what their remote staff are doing than their internal staff. And as, uh, I should, sorry, not internal, uh, domestic staff, but these are internal staff where we're, we like to make that distinction. But I always tell them you should develop something company-wide and stick, if you have a domestic AP clerk and a remote AP clerk, they should have the same objectives. They should have the same numbers. And so tackling that from a metrics point of view is, is the best way to do it. Then there's just simply the, the time aspect to it. 
communicate with them, have open communication. Right now I've got Google chat open on my, uh, uh, on my screen. I'm, I've got it on silent because we're here, but people are messaging me throughout the day, just ongoing communication. We have regular check-ins, we have meetings. Uh, I'm in Omaha. Other than my wife, out of almost 500 employees in the organization, my wife and I and one admin assistant are the only people in Omaha. So I have directors of accounting and VP of operations and all these people just spread out throughout the country. And we just, we communicate. They have their parameters, they have their goals, and we just communicate on a regular basis. Um, and then third, I would say, go visit them. One of the reasons we chose Mexico as opposed to a lot of other countries to be our main focus is it's a three hour plane ride. Um, I, I go down six, seven, eight times a year. I try to go as much as I can. We encourage clients to come down. We have offices there so that they can bring the team in and work with them for a few days. Or if you have somebody who's gonna be promoted to a team lead, fly them up to the office. Um, and a lot of times you can do that or take them to conferences with you, depending on your industry. You can once a quarter have a couple of days together in person as opposed to just water cooler chit chat throughout the year. So that's how I would tackle the productivity side. The culture side, obviously it'll depend on what culture you're talking about, but in our mind, that's one of the services we provide is we help people navigate the cultural differences. We have guides for both the clients and the employees. So for example, in the US, because of privacy laws, I would never ask in an interview, so, you know, are you married? Do you have any kids? I would never ask that. In Mexico, that's completely normal. And in fact, just jumping in with no small talk might seem a little bit rude to some people. So we advise people on make some small talk. Maybe don't ask about anything you're not comfortable with. Don't answer anything you're not comfortable with. But, you know, make some small talk before you dive right in. Um, stuff like that. And we're always learning. We, we do not profess to have all of the answers, but every time a new situation comes up, we add it to the material back to the learning management system we're building. And we have a weekly webinar on how to do interviews and stuff like that. So we're always adapting and learning to help with that. We send out newsletters and, and just try to bridge that gap. Yeah, no, I think that's, that's a great way to look at it. Obviously understanding the, the cultural differences between the two countries is important, but what about the culture of the company that they're being hired to um, work yeah absolutely and that is that is difficult i won't lie it is harder to impute your company culture to remote workers unless you make it a priority um it will seem a little obvious but the first thing is you have to define what your company culture is like you you have what are your values what's important to you we have a mission statement we have a values statement that we've created and it is on the wall of our office in Guadalajara and in Mexico City, so that when new employees come in, it's the it's first thing they see right there on the wall. Um, so you have to define it and you have to make the effort. Um, so for us, one of our big ones is charity, uh, which from every company we've ever had, a portion of the profits goes to charity. My wife and I recently made the commitment that we were going to match our salary to our charitable giving. We, we would never take more out of the company than the company has given away. And that's something we've been working for for a while. So if we want to live on 100000 a year, the company better give away at least 100000 a year. Um, and so we have 
charities that we support. We support an orphanage in Guadalajara. We support an education program that targets human trafficking here in, in Omaha. We have a program called the Shoe That Grows in uh, Idaho that we support, uh, stuff like that. And so we'll have quarterly work days where employees can come and work at one of the charities based on their location. They Part of the newsletters is we say, hey, this is this is Diego. This is one of the kids we've been supporting and you're helping to do that by working here. So we just, we make it a priority there. There's no secret other than just put the work in, put the time in and, and just try to do that. Yeah, no, I think that's, I think that's great. I mean, I, I think that everybody's still trying to figure this out, right? People understand that it can be more productive. It can be better for providing that elusive work-life balance that every employee, you know, states that they want to have and every business owner states that they want to be able to provide. But, you know, certain people that are spending, depending on the area of the country, I mean, you mentioned Southern California and Northern California, two of the worst places in the country for traffic, right? Mm -hmm. Seattle behind that. So all these places that are known for tech as tech hubs, uh, have terrible traffic. And so you've got these employees that are spending hours a day commuting to and from work. And that just, you know, that goes away completely if you're able to work remotely and, and spend time at home instead. So, you yeah. know, I, I think you guys are figuring it out and, and, and sharing some information that hopefully is helpful to those listening who are, who are struggling to do the exact same thing. So, I want to shift gears a little bit here, Rob. I know one of the things that that you've done in the past is buy and sell businesses. So, mm -hmm. you know, I, I want to get your take on what what you think is the most important thing to look at when you're buying a business. Most important. That's a good question. Obviously, you've got to know the product. Um, you know, I would never buy a tech company because I'm not a programmer. Is it something that you can jump in to most of the roles? And obviously, if you're buying a $50 million company, that's not going to be uh, accurate. But if you're buying a, a cleaning company, like I used to have when I was in college, are you willing to go out there and clean the houses if somebody calls off sick? Because I did. Um, is it something that's scalable? I mean, depending on your goals, I assume you're not buying a business to just let it sit. How, what's it going to look like if it grows? Um, similarly, what are your fixed costs if things go down? I like service businesses because they have low fixed costs and they're easy to scale if things go well. Um, if you buy a factory, you're you're stuck with that. You know, you're you're uh, yeah. Um, does it solve a problem? Uh, you know, everything that I expanded to was because of a problem I had today. Like, hey, I would love it if somebody offered this. Nobody's offering that. Okay, I'm going to go ahead and do it because I bet there's more people wishing this was addressed. Um, obviously, cash flow. Uh, how much is the seller involved? Uh, sellers that are absentee will have a higher multiple on their, the valuation of their business because it needs them less. Whereas I, I bought a business last year that the seller, it was probably the worst purchase I've made. Um, and the seller, just everything was tied to her and up here and everything had an exception and nothing was written down. And it was just, it was a bad, bad purchase, my mistake. Um, so yeah, you want to look at that. You want to make sure the seller has some skin in the game. I will not buy a company without a seller burnout. Like they've got to have some skin in the game that you don't get paid until the transition is done. Um, 
what else? Yeah, I mean, I, I would say those things are good ones. Um, add in the BS factor. Nobody's giving you the full truth. You know, it's like if it's barely breaking even, you can bet they're losing money. Um, never count future progress. Oh, it would be great if the, the buyer could do this. Okay, why didn't the seller do that? So there, there's a BS factor in every transaction. Um, so add about 20% to your costs. Yeah. Um, so yeah, no, stuff I like think- that. Yeah, re- really great feedback. Uh, some of the things that we talk about with our clients, you you mentioned, right? And that's so owner dependence. If the owner is mm-hmm. an absentee owner, then you're right. The value of that business does go up, right? And so, you know, I'll ask, I'll ask, I'll have you answer this in just a second. But in in if you're thinking about preparing your business to sell, that's one of the things that should be top of mind for you is how do I make myself, quote unquote, operationally irrelevant to this company? Meaning you don't have to be there at all for weeks, months at a time, and the business will still be just fine and do just fine financially without you and operationally. So just, you know, one thing to think about there, but, you know, making sure that they're that their numbers are legitimate, right? Audited financials, all those types of things that, you know, you, you mentioned some of these things. Can you see yourself stepping into it? And, and there's not a right or a wrong answer, right? Like you can buy a business as an investment and you're just buying it for the cash flows, right? Mm-hmm. Sure. Or you can buy the business as a job, right? Like yeah. maybe just you're working somewhere else and you want to buy a business that provides you a job as well. And you can hopefully grow it to something else. But if you can replace your income by jumping into a job that you're controlling yourself and that that is, you know, you're only answering to yourself, there's nothing wrong with that either. Yeah, I think that's a really great one that I missed earlier is figure out what you're doing. Like, is this just a cash cow? Nothing wrong with that. Treat people well, you know, behave honorably. There's nothing wrong with that. Is it you love this topic? You've always wanted to be a photographer or whatever. Okay, cool. Identify that going in. You know, is it I plan to use this as a platform acquisition so that I can then buy these companies? Great. Figure out what the end game is, both good and bad, before going in. Because a lot of people, they don't identify that. They just think it sounds kind of cool to be a business owner. And they probably have never been a business owner. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, you got to go in with your eyes wide open, that's for sure. Yeah. All right, so now let's flip that. So when you're getting ready to prepare a business for sale, I already mm-hmm. talked about obviously being operationally irrelevant to the organization. So what else do you, you know, let's say one of your companies, you're preparing it to sell in the next three to five years. What are you working on day to day to get your business ready to be sold? I would go through that exact same list just in reverse. I would make sure that I have a successor in place that's already running things that I can honestly say I'm absentee. Depends on the size of the business, of course. Um, Systems, processes, metrics, stuff like that. Uh, Financial auditing, make sure your books are squeaky clean. If you, most business owners, I think every business owner, you know, you charge a lunch date to your company card, stuff like knock that crap off. The fewer ad backs you have, the better. Um, uh, compliance, make sure you have all the licenses, make sure your HR is in good shape, make sure you don't have any key personnel that, that are gonna leave and, and leave you high and dry, stuff like that. Um, 
figure out the difference between long-term and short-term investments. So a good advertising campaign might generate more revenue two to three years out. But if you're going to sell in six months, it's probably worth it to dial the advertising budget back. Um, you might keep clients that you would otherwise get rid of uh, because you want the numbers on the books. Um, stuff like that. Just earlier list, just backwards. Yeah. No, re really great list. I'm just going to kind of augment one thing that you said. So you, you talked about having a successor that can kind of run the day to day for you so that you, you know, can step out and be an absentee owner. And I would just expand that and say, have a great team, right? So not just one person to run the organization, but somebody who can manage each aspect of the business and that has an enticement or an incentive to stay post-sale. Yeah. Yep. And take care of your people. Um, keep like, keep in mind, these are people that have trusted you. They've given their lives to you Do decide what you're willing to accept from a buyer. Are you going to sell to a corporate raider that's going to slash and burn? If so, put some money aside for, you know, golden parachutes to pay people what they deserve now that you've sold the company. Um, Otherwise, be willing to do vet your uh, vet your buyers and say, "Hey, I want a three year employment contract because these people have been with me through thick and thin." Identify your priorities. I'm not going to tell you what's right and what's wrong. You should know that already, but figure it out before you decide to sell. Yep, yep. You got to know what what you're looking to get out of this and what's important to you. And it, and it's easy to say, "I want this many millions of dollars," right? But that's not, that's not the only thing to consider, that you've got to consider who you're selling to and what they're going to do with the company and what's most important to you, right? Because if you've built it, say, for example, you've built it around your own last name, right? Right. And you're going to sell it to somebody else. Are they going to change the name? Are you okay with that? Are you okay with losing control? Are you okay? Like, there's just so many things to consider besides how much money goes into my pocket. Right. Yeah. And it's, it's okay that if that's the only thing that you truly care about and everything else is, you know, they'll figure it out as the, as the buyer, they can do with it what they want because I sold it to them. That's okay too. Right. You just, you just have to know what's important to you and, and not just think about the money. Yeah, definitely. Uh, tax ramifications too. That's another one people aren't prepared for. Yep. Yep. You got to understand what you're selling for and what you're actually going to net after taxes. And is that enough to accomplish what you were trying to accomplish from it? Right. Is it, is it enough to retire if that's what you're trying to accomplish? Is it enough to buy the next business if that's what you're trying to accomplish? Right. You, you've got to take the net number into, into account, not the gross number. Yeah. Uh, and then decide on what you're willing to accept for a non-compete. Uh, you know, they'll probably want you to stay out of the industry for five years, um, depending on what you're in. So are you ready for that as well? Yeah, yeah good point. Good point. All right. So day to day, Rob, you are balancing a lot of things. You're spinning a lot of plates. You're doing a lot of really um, crazy is not maybe the best the best word to use, but you're doing a lot it's of not things. not the worst either. <laughs> You're doing a lot of things that could definitely make you crazy, right? So 
at this point, it's my understanding that you've technically got seven businesses running simultaneously. So how are you, how are you doing that without driving yourself or your wife or both crazy? Uh, I mean, I've got an amazing team. I've got some people that have been with me for years that I, I trust implicitly and they, they have their areas and, and I just trust them to handle it. Um, two sets of two companies have merged. So by the end of the year, that number will be down to five companies. And then I actually made the difficult decision to sell one of the companies because it didn't fit with our long-term goal. Um, I liked it, but it was good for, it was good for cash flow to sell it. And I just, I had to make that call. So by the end of the year, that number will probably be down to four, but a lot healthier four. And half of that will be under the Gordian Business Solutions brand. So those remaining two will actually become divisions of one company and they'll each have presidents of the divisions. Gotcha. All right. So you're, you're actually putting plans in place to make some changes to make your life easier than it is today. And, and maybe you've kind of learned the hard way that there was too much going on at one point. Yeah, I, I, I won't pretend I overextended last year. I, I expanded too much too quickly. I, you know, I made mistakes and I expanded too far too quickly. No, I'm, I'm not too proud to admit that I screwed up. Yeah. Well, I, I tell you, you know, one of the things that sets successful entrepreneurs apart is the ability to deal with, accept, learn from, and move on from failures because we all make them, right? We all make mistakes. We all have failures. Um, but we've got to be able to learn from them and move on and, and do things differently going forward. Yeah, there's a very important principle called the sunk cost fallacy that I think everybody should pay attention to. Um, and it's, you can't look at a situation of, oh, I've invested five years and $500,000 into this business. I can't sell it for this because that's less than I put into it it doesn't matter. What matters is where you are today. If it's a bad business, if it's a bad job, bad whatever, you got to walk away. You have to know when to cut your losses and say, like the one I'm selling, full transparency, I'm selling it for about 20% less than I paid for it because I was too busy to take care of it. But where I stand today, it's the smart move and it's the right move for my other companies. Yeah. I think that's a really important lesson. I mean, I, I remember that very well from business school and I'd already owned and operated businesses before I went to business school, but I hadn't heard it put in that, in those terms before. And, and what I found for me personally is that that freed me up to make the right decision without factoring in how much I'd put into that, right? And some cost just doesn't apply to financials. It, it applies mm -hmm. to time and effort and you know mental space anything that you've put into something if if you're making a decision you've got to be able to set that aside and say what's the best decision from here forward regardless of all that other stuff yep yeah, yeah. and remember that you're not owed anything you know just because netflix and Facebook and whatever tell you that you're going to be a massive success or whatever you see, people love to broadcast the successes, but they don't talk about the failures. You're owed nothing. So if it's a bad situation, you've got to walk away and protect what you have left. 
Yeah. Yep. No doubt about it. Yeah. Thanks for bringing that up. It's been a, it's been a long time actually since I've spoken about sunk costs. So that was that was a great call out. Well, and there's another one called the gambler's fallacy. And it's it's not directly related, but it's well if you're at a, if you're at a, a roulette wheel and I've lost nine times in a row, so I have to win this time. No, you don't. Every time is a unique occurrence. You have no guarantee. And sunk cost fallacy. One of the worst situations is gamblers. I've already lost ten thousand dollars. I have to keep playing until I win it all back because I I'm owed this. I deserve. No, you're not. I, I think everybody in America needs to, and the world needs to be sat down and said very politely, but firmly, you're owed nothing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. The, the world owes you nothing. And I, I try to convey that to my kids that are adults now. As a matter of fact, my youngest had her 20th birthday yesterday. And, and it's, uh, you know, it, it's one of those things to where you just, you have to realize that you truly are owed nothing. You got to work hard for everything that you, that you get in life and put forth the effort and education and whatever it takes to be successful in what area you choose, you've got to be willing to pay that price. Yep. Yeah. Well, good. So last thing I've got for you, Rob, and then we'll let you get back to, you know, the seven businesses today that are turning into five and then four. So, you know, you're still busy today. So we'll, we'll take that into account. So we kind of talked about this a little bit, but I want to have you expound upon it a little bit. And that is just going forward. What is your belief in terms of remote staffing and changing business models? I mean, we're, we're post COVID now there, there's still COVID cases, right? I'm not discounting that people are still, you know, uh, being diagnosed with COVID every day, but the, the pandemic itself and the, the really severe aspects of COVID are, are behind us, I believe. Um, so where do we go from here in terms of changing business models post-COVID? I think post-COVID is going to look a lot like during COVID because everything was already heading that direction. COVID just sped us up 10 years. And now that people have worked from home for a few years and they've realized they can save on gas, they can save on daycare because they can keep their kid in the next room without, you know, depending on the situation. Um, they, like us, we, we left during COVID, we moved to a state where we pay a third of what we did for housing. We're not going back. It, it, some company like in California, I own a building maintenance company. Sure, they need to be on site, they need to be doing the work, but all the back office, the administration, all of that is done remotely. And so if you're in a white collar industry, it's going to go remote. You can either adapt and be ahead of the curve. Actually, I'll be honest, it's, it's too late to be ahead of the curve. You can be with the curve or you can fall behind. One of the things I love to quote is people talk about uh, uh, Darwin's survival of the fittest. And when there's shakeups and market shakeups, the, the strong survive, kind of. Darwin's uh, theory of, of survival of the fittest, it was those most adaptable to change will survive. That's the key today. I mean, AI, people are not giving AI the attention it deserves. The way that COVID shook things up, AI is going to do it more. You've got to stay nimble and adaptable and remote staffing. It, it's just the way you're going to get a bigger talent pool. You're going to get them for cheaper. 
And honestly, it's going to make your company stronger because you have to adapt to the new style with things like metrics and accountability and stuff like that. That will help your entire company, not just your remote staff. So it, it's just, it's not negotiable. It's going to happen. Yeah. Yeah, no, I, I agree with you 100%. I, you know, I, I think that we were in our industry, I'll just speak for Landon and I, in our industry, we were a little bit ahead of the curve in terms of doing remote meetings, right? Like video meetings like we're doing right now. We had adopted Zoom and we're using WebEx and, you know, te uh, Teams and all that kind of stuff before COVID hit. But it has accelerated even for us. Like we had put in place, our plan is to move towards 95% video meetings rather than in person, right? right? We had already set that before COVID hit. And obviously it accelerated much quicker because we were forced to meet that way anyway. Right. But for us in our industry, we typically build our, our practice in our own geographical area, right? Well, we had clients in other states that we had ties to already before COVID, but since COVID, we've expanded from the, call it four states that we had ties to already and clients in, to now we work with clients in 16 states. And it's completely acceptable that several of them, we've never met in person. Yeah. And we, yeah, we're still just as efficient for them. We're still providing just as good a service for them, even though we've never met them in person crazy right yeah we've got clients in 28 states and it's like i i've never met a lot of you but it works yeah yep. yep, absolutely does well rob as a as a closer just kind of tell anybody who's listening that uh that needs remote staffing remote workers for their for their employees how do they get in touch with you and and, uh, and gordian staffing sure it's gordianstaffing.com you can also find us on linkedin i'm on there uh, Gordian Business Solutions has a page as well. So you can always look us up there. And I'm always happy to chat. I love helping business owners because I know how difficult of a role it is. If anybody just wants to pick my brain, I'm more than happy to. Yeah. Well, I appreciate the conversation, Rob. Appreciate a couple of good nuggets that I think you, you know, almost reminded me of things that I hadn't spoken of or about in, in quite some time. So I really appreciated the conversation and your willingness to come on the show. Thanks for having me. You've been listening to Tycoons of Small Biz, a podcast for small business owners by small business owners. Join us next week for an introduction to another great tycoon and be sure to follow us on our social media channels for links to all of our episodes and great content.